everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where a bunch of writers sit around, drink coffee, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today, your hosts are John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 100. Woo! I mean, episode 100, interview with Paul Attaway. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. We're a little excited that... First of all, my goodness, we've been at this a hundred times. And secondly, your um, agents reaching out to have us, would we like to interview you, was exciting because this is what we would love to talk to is more people that have successfully finished their first novel. And so it's all very fresh for you to tell us all about it. So you wrote a book. Tell us about your book. Well, uh, yeah, I did. Um, Yeah. it's one of those things, it's a, it's, a, it's a more difficult question to answer than I ever thought it would be because I never want to give away, you know, the, uh, the shocks and surprises as to, quote, what happens in the story. But it is a family drama, family saga, murder mystery that's set in Charleston, South Carolina in the 1970s. Uh, we have a husband and a wife. The protagonist is Monty. He's the husband. And they have two sons, one from her first marriage, Rose, the wife, and then one together. And there is a, a murder in their community. Wait, wait, it, wait. Yeah. You got to tell me the name. Oh, I'm sorry. It's called Blood in the Low Country. Blood in the Low Country. So uh, it, Sharps Rifles doesn't show up in it because you said it in the <laughs> 70s in, in, in America. Correct. And who, who published this first novel of yours? Oh, sorry. About it, is, that. Uh, it is self-published. Excellent. Okay. So when you say in the low country, uh, for those of us that are familiar with European theaters of war, the low countries would be, you know, Belgium and Netherlands. What are low countries for your book? Well, the low country specifically is the coast of South Carolina and just a bit into Georgia. But specifically, it is the southern coast of South Carolina. And it's always been referred to as the low country. It's very marshy. Um, and it has its own culture and its own food. Uh, it's a very interesting place. And, you know, you go back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago and the tidal waves have moved and changed since then, but it's, it is very marshy along the coast. And that's for, for those of us that are not from the area, that is good to know. And this brings up another thing that we were talking before about how everybody is, gets really familiar with the area it's kind of neat to have these that really introduce people to, I think of myself, well, I'm in the Bay Area, and doesn't everybody know what the Bay Area is? But people down in LA said, we have a Bay too, Jeannie, and then Chesapeake people have their own. So, yes, yeah, so that's country. Yeah, it is. It's true. And um, so I'm from Atlanta originally. So I know the South. I grew up in the South. My wife is from Los Angeles, and she has fallen in love with the South. And we have recently made a move. We've been living in Phoenix for the last 30 plus years. And we, we now live in Charleston, South Carolina. So when I ventured down the road of you know, becoming an author, wanting to write a book, you know, when it came time to decide where I wanted the book set, um, Charleston was a, a wonderful place. The city has an unbelievable amount of charm and history to it. Uh, a lot of fans, people that love to visit here, people that like to read books based here. And for a lot of people, Charleston itself can almost become a character in a book because it has such a, a rich history, a oh. revolutionary war, civil war. Um, 
And it is a city that's been reborn uh, in the last you know, 30 years. I believe strongly that cities are characters in books because <laughs> when, if you're reaching Rich Cadre's Sandra Man Slim, that is Hollywood in the 1970s. So tell us a little bit about your, char- your Charleston, your slice of it in the 1970s. Well, in the 1970s, it was um, it was a much poorer city than it is today. Um, it was, you know, you go back to the 18th century, and Charleston probably was the richest city in the country. There was more wealth concentrated here. Of course, it was built on the backs of slavery between the cotton trade and the rice trade. And when slavery ended after the Civil War. Uh, the plantations just basically were abandoned because no one would ever work them for any amount of money. And so they, they basically went into a state of disarray and the city never really recovered. Uh, it never really developed another industry other than tourism. And there used to be a saying that uh, in the, in the, um, on the peninsula itself, people were um, too poor to paint, but too proud to whitewash. And there was a hurricane, uh, I forget which one it was, I think it was Hugo in 1980 that just decimated the city, but it provided a great deal of uh, federal funding to rebuild the city. And there is a very strong um, Bureau of Architectural Review in town that ensured that all of the homes in the southern part of the peninsula, a neighborhood called South Abroad, would be rebuilt to the exact standards that they were built originally. So you walk around this neighborhood and there are homes that were built in the 1780s, 1810. Um, and from the street, they look the same, that they, they, they look identical to what they looked like 200 years ago. So, but in the seventies, that was before all of this happened. So there was, it wasn't, it wasn't the tourist destination that it is today. It was a much, uh, not poor, but certainly not um, thriving city the way it is now. I, I love the diversity of architecture. And it's, you painted an interesting picture then of the what's old and peeling and decrepit and versus new all side by side. Well, it is. The neighborhood we now live in, uh, my wife and I, we, we remodeled a house here. The house was built in 1890. We have the original floors. We have the original fireplaces. We had to refurbish some of the fireplaces and chimneys. Um, and from the street, we have to pick from a palette of colors. We have a piazza screen door. We have the porch from the, from the outside. It looks exactly the same way it did, um, you know, in 1890 when it was built. Now, on the inside, we have a modern kitchen. You know, we have USB plugs. We have flat screen TVs. You know, so on the inside, you can do whatever you want. But on the outside, you have to maintain the architectural standards. So, Continuing on with the city as a character, um, certainly the characters of the city are characters. Absolutely. Form of phrase. And one of the things one finds about historic figures in, sorry, historic cities in Europe is that to, to be a truly historic city, it has to, like Charleston, have been a great city and then lost something, the economic driver so that the splendor remains, but not the filth. And there's always a remain a, a tension between, especially in tourist towns, between the old and the new, the nouveau riche, um, the old money. Does that come into your novel? Is that something you've seen or am I totally Yes. Off 
No, no, no. You're, I think that's a great description to maintain the beauty and shake off the filth. Um, it does come into play in my book uh, to an extent. There is a street in town called Broad Street. And if you lived, um, uh, it's called being south abroad, you're an SOB. If you were um, living south abroad, you were an SOB. Um, and if you lived slightly north abroad, you were a snob. S-N-O-B. <laughs> but so you, you go down to the historic section and, and, and it is beautiful. It, it's absolutely gorgeous to walk down these streets and they haven't changed. And, and um, you know, uh, there are homes that you can tour that are, you know, a three to five minute walk from our house that are just, they're just gorgeous. Um, and the very, very wealthy would buy their daughter's homes as wedding gifts, send them to Europe for a year to buy the antiques, bring them back. And, 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 and so you can still go into these homes and tour the homes and it's, it's jaw dropping what's in them. Now the filth of course, is that um, I, I've heard differing numbers. So I'll just pick one and you get the point. 75, 80, 85% of all the slaves that came into this country came through the port of Charleston. Mm. So when you do the historic tours around town, whether it's a, a horse-drawn carriage tour or a walking tour, they talk about the history of Charleston. And when they talk about it, I think they have done an extraordinarily good job of simply talking about it. They don't try to sugarcoat it, whitewash it, ignore it. It is what it is. And But at the same time, the city has... Um, moved on. Now it's actually a very thriving city. They have one of the busiest ports in the country. There is a developing software industry here. Um, you know, now that you can work remotely, we've had a lot of people from New York move down here and set up shop, so to speak. Um, so I've been living here off and on, and I find race relations here to be um, very good, all things considered. Um, but Going back to South Abroad, it was more of an economic distinction than it was, say, a black and white distinction, because um, being a poor town, there are as many poor white people as poor black people. So, But in my story, uh, there is a gang, I say gang, there is a group of women who I, um, I stereotype a bit as the uh, social climbers, those who want to be part of the South Abroad um, uh, group and those that are actually part of it. And, and, and it, it can be easy to stereotype those types of people. And there are one or two characters that, you know, fit the bill of the um, South abroad um, and the, the, you know, and the snobbery that can go with that. Well, there's, so, I mean, we, we use stereotypes when we're creating characters in fiction in general, you have, here's, there are certain heroic stereotypes, there are certain villain stereotypes. How did this come together when you were starting to think about I want to write a book in all of this. How did, was there a crystallized moment that you said, I have a story and it's set here or tell us about the, the, the engendering of this story. Yeah. So um, there's, there's, there's two answers to that question. And I'll skip over the first one. The first one was how I decided to um, write a book to begin with. And I can come back and answer that question if you like. But once I made up my mind that I was going to you know, write a book, that it, came down to well, what am I going to write about? And so the first thing I did was I began to read books and blogs on how to write books. You know, and I was a, I was a finance major in college and I had a 30 year career in the business world. So um, small business, I've always written. I wrote 
everything that the companies I started ever released, whether it was you know instructional manuals, uh, uh, offering memorandums, et cetera. So writing was a skill I had kept up, but but storytelling was was different. So um, I, I some of the advice I received was you know write what you know, write what you know, um, and I had ideas about um, relations between fathers and sons. Uh, I was very close to my father, lost him uh, way too young. Um, and so that, that's always you know, been there with me is you know, the, the, you know, the, the value. That it comes from a strong father-son relationship, but also the challenge of being a father. It's really hard. Uh, I have three adult children, my wife and I do, uh, and it's hard. So that was something that I said, I'm going to write about father-son relationships. Um, so that was sort of the genesis. And then, you know, then of course, you know, you, you, know, you need some conflict, you need some tension. And so then, then that's sort of the next bit of tension I threw into it was, um, okay, Monty, he's a, you know, he's a man of faith um, and he feels pulled. How do I both honor my wife, but not test my, my children? You know, two things he'd grown up being taught to do. You, you honor your spouse, but don't test your children. And he found himself being pulled. Um, so but that kind of set if, the story. If I may forward. ask, what do you yeah. mean by test your children? Um, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, if your children are directed or asked to honor their parents, that's generally good advice. But if as a parent, you're a total ass towards your children and make it impossible for them to honor you by how you treat them and how you interact with them, I think that would be testing your children. Um, and we've, you know, we've, we've all probably seen that where you've had children that are, are um, grow up with parents that make it very difficult for them to respect their parents because of the way the parents behave. So uh, to test your children, I think, would be to behave as a parent in such a way that it makes it impossible for the child to respect you as a parent. Right. That makes sadly sense. probably too much of that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I yeah. just wanted clarity yeah. there. Yeah. No problem. So that was sort of the next genesis. I'm, I'm going to try to write about that. Um, but then, you know, sticking with the, the idea that write what you know, um, after a while, I realized, um, you know, as, you know um, our lives are pretty boring. <laughs> when you think it, when you actually start writing them down, you, know, you have to fictionalize things. You have to sensationalize it to a bit. So um, you know, I, I, I joke that um, after about 10,000 words, I realized, you know, someone was going to have to die to make this story interesting. Um, and, and that's when I came up with a, a way that someone would be, would be murdered, and then there would be the hunt for the real killer, and it would turn so, the lives of a few families upside down. So, so you're writing a mystery for the excitement of it, because, my God, you have a great awareness of the character that is the city, the character that is the class divisions, the, the character that is just, you know, interwoven into any family. Of course you had to write a murder. You don't have to write a murder mystery. You could write anything with that base. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You're after, yeah, no, you, you know, you could, um, this was, you know, this was the story that, that, um, you know, popped into my head, so to speak. Yeah. And, uh, it's the so story I ran with. Are you a, are you a, uh, I, I'm trying to change, not use pantser and plotter anymore, but are right. you a, I'm going to say a, a planner of gardens where everything has a neat and orderly way that it's going to go? Are you a little bit more organic that, okay, I've got these, I guess they'll fit here. So 
Yeah, well, that's this has been an interesting process for me because in my prior life in the business world, um, very much a planner, very much a planner, uh, planned in great detail, uh, tried to anticipate everything that could go wrong, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, and and be ready for it. And I think that you know that served me well in the business world. So then I I I, I sit down to write a book and. And there is this beautiful library that's a short walk from here. So I did a lot of the writing at this old library. And I, I remember the first day I sit down, I've got legal pads and my laptop, and I sit down to write my book. And I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And it was frustrating because it was not a process I could plan because I'd never done it before. I, had, I didn't know how long it would take to do X, Y, and Z. And so what I found is that... Um, the inspiration would, would arrive, not always on time. Uh, sometimes, you know, later that day when I walked out in frustration and I'd, I'd go for a run or I'd run some errands or I'd, you know, be sitting at home cooking dinner with my wife and I'd get an idea and I'd go, wait a minute, that could work. And I'd quickly write something down or I'd email myself and then I'd get back the next day and I go, okay, I can work with that. And then I might plan the next two or three scenes. And, and I'd write them. And so it, it really was a, a, um, a, a hybrid where I, I'd get the idea, I'd get the genesis of an idea. It might take a little research to flesh it out and see if it made sense. And then I would be able to plan the next several scenes. Um, and I love and that's that kind of how it worked together. I love that you talked about writing down ideas. Just last episode, last, last Tuesday, we were sitting around saying, ah, notebooks. Yes, they are your yep. biggest friend to like, what a great name. I'm going to write that down. Or I like that phrase. I've already, I've written down one of your phrases already that I enjoyed here. The uh, too poor to paint, too proud to whitewash. Yeah. I, I spent summers in Arkansas when my grandparents moved there. And that really defined a lot of Arkadelphia. So. Well, I know it is. It's funny because um, pe- people will say, well, you know, like, the, Paul, when do you write? You know, tell us about your day or and I had a friend of mine joke recently that I had retired that I don't really work. And I, I try not to get indignant. And I go, are you kidding me? I'm always at work because you don't know when you're going to get the idea or you're going to find that perfect character name. And then I do. I email. My, I get as many emails from myself these days as I get from other people because um, I'm out and about and I have to, oh, that's great. I email myself and I love that method. You're the first person who's mentioned of emailing yourself ideas. I think it's like past me is sending me this really great idea and I can use it. Well, it, uh, it, you know, I'm 57, so I'm not, I haven't totally lost my memory, but I I know that it's, it's not as sharp as it used to be. And I used to have a good idea and then I'd get to my desk today and I'd go, "Ah, what, what, what was that idea? And it would, drive me crazy that I couldn't recall it. And when, that's when I, when when I started to email myself. did you do the bulk of the writing? Did you do any of this this last year or when did you finish? Because we have yeah. all found our memories affected by the last 12 months. Oh, the last, yeah, seems like 12 months, seems like 10 years ago. Um, so let's see here. We're, uh, I published the book in September of 2020. Um, I got to count backwards. I finished it and when I say finished it, I'd gone through, you know, professional editing in roughly um, early April of 2020. So uh, 19, um, I started the book in January 2018. 
no, two, <laughs> 2000, uh, yeah, 2017, I think it was. But I was still consulting. I was working with a real estate developer. And so I had this idea that, uh, you know, I, I could, you know, 20 hours a week in my consulting gig, you know, 15 to 20 hours a week writing and a few hours here and there to go, you know, do other things. Um, the consulting became all consuming. I could not write effectively. I'd put it down for a week. I'd come back. I'd go, where was I? What was going on? I had no momentum. Um, the consulting gig, I finished it. And um, so I picked the pen back up. I have, I have like 30,000 words that I think, frankly, are a different book. I put them on the shelf. The book just wasn't going anywhere. And I was still contemplating other consulting opportunities. And in June of 2019, I said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm really going to become a writer, I need to go all in and commit myself. And that's what I did. Uh, beginning June 2019, and I finished my final draft um, late February of 2020, and that's what I then went in the process of finding an editor and trying to figure out how to, quote, get published. So technically, it took me three years, but I would say if I actually crammed all the time together, it was probably you know a year and a half to write the book. So in, in terms of when you say you have a finished product there, or at least you have your good first draft and you're, you've survived all your spell checking, you're ready for a pro editor and somebody to say, how's your pacing? Right. Did you research to find, I want an editor that writes these kinds of books? Did you approach any writers or did you go to an agency sort of thing? Sort of a- I, yes. Um, so the answer to the first question was a, a lot of these things were going on simultaneously looking for an editor, trying to figure out how to get published. So I was, you know, several balls in the air. And um, I cannot recall the names of the websites off the top of my head, but I did a lot of Googling and, you know, how to find an editor, where, where to find these editors. And there's a couple of good websites out there that will put the profile up of the editor and you can read about the editor, the books they've written, the books that they have edited and kind of what their specialty is. So, you know, I was able to online go through, uh, you know, 30, 40 different profiles. And then I, I think I picked two or three and I reached out to them to see what their availability was and how quickly they could turn it around. Um, I think most of these editors would provide you, you know, they would edit three or four pages, you know, at no charge where you could see sort of how you could work together. And, um, you know, I, I picked an editor and, and it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a fascinating process. I enjoyed it because it was the first time someone other than my wife, you know, had read what I had written. And, and, um, you know, my wife was extraordinarily encouraging. Um, she challenged me along the way, but it's difficult to ever, to, to get a truly objective third-party view from your spouse, um, try as you may. So it was great to have a professional pair of eyes come in and, <laughs> and, and, and look at what I'd written. I hear you. I've had my husband look at my stories and he come. He looked at me. I see you've managed to murder another child. <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? Yes. He's, right. he's a very cheerful, positive person. So if I write things that involve murder, he gets very sad with me. Right. So. You're a very cheerful, positive person too, because you write things involving murder. Get him out of your system, but he has a bicycle. Uh, well, so go ahead. Sorry, after you. I was going to say, I, I have found many people that add, murder and death and violence and all of these things, those who write hoarder, some of us do that from a place of being 
very angry that the world is not the way that we wish it were. Do you find that in yourself at all? Um, I can certainly, um, the first part of your, I'm not an angry person. Um, I actually. No, um, no, no. I don't, I don't yeah. mean an angry person. Oh, I mean, oh, just yeah. that you can not be an angry person in an outward expression while still having this core of this is not, this could be better. Why are they, why are they hurting? Why are people? they this way? Yes. No, um, I, um, um, I don't, uh, yeah, I've, I've made this comment before. I'm not crazy about the world we live in. But I think given what's gone on in the last year, I think there are a lot of people who are maybe feeling that for the first time. You know, they're just sort of bewildered. Um, and um, uh, there's, there's just too much division. Um, and, I, you know, we, we could, you could go all day about why it's that way. Is, you know, who's to bear the blame? Can we get out of it? I, I don't, I don't care to talk about those things, but it, it's, yeah, yeah. it's been, it, it's, it's been the, the, the division. Um, it's just not fun. So yeah, yeah, there's been a bit of that. Um, but in my, in my book, there is a murder, um, but it happens you know, off scene. Um, the actual, the body is discovered. The murder uh, is not glamorized in any way. The, it's not a gratuitous, uh, violence. Uh, I mean, it happens, and because and and there is a bad guy, and but I didn't want to do anything to really glamorize the bad guy. Um, he's he's simply there as the bad guy. The real story is how this murder um, affects the lives of a couple of families, how they respond to it, and the changes in their character that the reader can experience as they as they live as they live it out. Excellent. Excellent. So, right. go, John. You've written, it, it, you as a vehicle of a murder mystery, you've written a novel of family. Now, you you mentioned earlier the fear that, uh, it, you illustrated this beautifully, by the way, which is why I'm, I'm leading into this, that you might, everyone has a one novel in them and you might not have a second, but you wrote <laughs> a lot of other things. What, without going into any spoilers, are there any of the characters including the city that you want to tell more about and yes. more of the sea and right yes. there is the second novel, at least one of them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm working on book two um, and somebody asked me what my working title is for my book. And I said, book two, um, that's all I've got so far, but I've written probably 15% of book two. Uh, it has many of the same characters. Um, and, and this time we're going to take a trip to the Bahamas for part of it. Uh, but it's going to, it's, you know, it starts in Charleston. We go to the Bahamas. It comes back to Charleston. Charleston will still be a character, so to speak. Uh, and we do have some recurring characters. I'm doing a lot more upfront research for this book. You know, I, I, um, I, as I said earlier, you know, grew up, you know, I was born in 1963. So I was a teenager in the 70s. I grew up in the South. I knew what it was like to go to, um, you know, the, uh, uh, church on Sundays and the, and the brunch afterwards and, and all the, in, in, in all the things that that entails. Um, but there's a lot of ties between the Bahamas and Charleston that are very interesting. Going back to King Charles II, I think, who granted land to five wealthy barons in 1663, the land he granted was what we call North and South Carolina and the Bahamas. And there was even a small constitution that was written that, that governed it. John Locke wrote it, and it governed 
including the Bahamas. The Bahamas have changed hands several times. Um, after the American Revolutionary War, there were Brits who lived in the South, well, actually lived throughout the, all the colonies, but um, they were the Loyalists or the Tories. They didn't feel welcome after the Revolutionary War, and they left, and many of them went to the Bahamas. And there are still people living in the Bahamas today that can trace their roots back to those families that left the Carolinas after the Revolutionary War. Um, and then there's the connection between uh, the Bahamas were used as a staging ground for running blockades during the Revolutionary War, during the Civil War, and during Prohibition. So there's, there's a lot of ties. And, and you you not, do, go ahead. <laughs> you not only have a character in a city, you now have a second character in the Bahamas and the relationship between them. And I'm yep. already interested. You, you have <laughs> yeah. me with that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, uh, it is interesting. Now, the challenge is I'm now having to learn about the Bahamas, not just the history, which is, you know, that's very doable. There's a lot of books you can read, et cetera. You can get a flavor for it. Um, no one expects me to necessarily know what it would have been like living in the Bahamas in, in 17, um, you know, in the 1740s, 1780s. But if I'm writing a book that's going to be set in the 70s during the Bahamas, people might have some expectation that I have a, a sense of authenticity. So this is proving to be a challenge. Um, I've reached out to my college alumni group to find anybody that grew up in the Bahamas. And I've, I've, I've uh, been introduced to a couple of people. So I'm interviewing them. That uh, is, a, is a great research trick that I'm going to have to remember. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I just, my cl you know, alumni class of 85. And I, it, was, it was great. It was amazing how many people were happy to help and reached out and said, oh, I didn't, but you should talk to so-and-so. And so I've had a couple of conversations and my wife and I were going to go to the Bahamas in about a week and a half. We're going to spend five days there. And we've got a couple of walking history tours. There's um, some set great up research and, to be done at the Bacardi yeah. tasting room. I, I myself have done good research there. At the Bacardi <laughs> tasting room. Perfect. Yes. I didn't know there were 22 flavors of Bacardi. And how would you know that if you hadn't been to the Bahamas? That's better than Baskin Robbins. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, and, and if you want history and how the locals react to things, it's better than a bar to be in a, a brewery or a distillery. Yeah. So we're, we're looking forward to this little um, research experience here. True story. So have you considered short stories at all? Or did you ever write short stories before this? Or? I, I did. Um, and the answer is yes, I have considered short stories. I wrote one short story. Um, you, it's on my website. Uh, it's called The North Curb. And it was the very first thing I wrote when I, back in you know, 2017, when I started thinking about writing. And, and so I, I really just kind of just wrote it for myself just to see if I could, if I could write something. And um, it's there at my website. And, and I have another short story I'm kicking around in my head. <laughs> but um, I tell you what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm busier than I've been in a while. But I, I'm thrilled to be busy between trying to write book two, trying to sell book Blood in the Low Country, my first book. Um, continuing to read. Uh, I mean, it's, um, and so, you know, 
uh, I have some people helping me sell the book. And I'm like, Paul, you need to blog. You need to post on social media. You need to do this on Facebook. And, and they're right. I need to do these things. Um, it becomes a challenge to, you know, to, to find time to, quote, you know, be creative and, and write a short story or a book. Learning how to market it is an important thing that um, many of the very successful authors I know still say, yep, they need to spend at least five to 10 hours a week just on marketing. Yep. Even with an agent, even with a publishing company, more and more, a lot of that is getting pushed onto the authors. So you being self-published, you kind of have to do the gap of what your publishing company isn't necessarily doing. That's correct. I mean, basically, you, you, know, you could list all the things that need to be done. Um, and I'm going to guess you go back 10, 15 years and the publishing companies did most of it. The publishers did yep. most of it. Yep. Uh, and, and of course, as a self-publisher, you do all of it. But from what I've read and picked up is that because the margins are getting so thin for publishers, they're pushing more and more of that onto the author. And they say, well, you've got Instagram, you've got Facebook, you've got Twitter. You can do this yourself now. Uh, um, so, no, it's a challenge. Yeah, but. Then, then there's building an audience too. And building an audience. That's right. So speaking of building an audience, let me ask you three yes, no questions. Would your, would your book, your first book be suitable for a crowd that likes death in English villages? Is it a crazy who done it like that? Uh, yes. I think they would enjoy it. Yes. It's not so much the who done it, but it's, it's um, because people, if you read the story, you'll know who did it. The reader does, but the, the characters don't. And, and so there's, you watch the characters try to solve the mystery, and there's, there's interest there. Okay. Secondly, second comparison. So would it good with, with English murder mysteries. Second comparison, does it hold up uh, to what I can only call the long history of Southern crime and adventure writing, which starts with the Travis McGee stories from my very limited perspective and ends up in with a bunch of things like get shorty and other modern caper stuff. Is there much of a caper in this? No, I wouldn't call it a caper story. Uh, I think, I think you could characterize it as Southern fiction. Um, you know, the uh, Southern Gothic, there are some ugly, you know, the, the Southern Gothic uh, genre kind of, you know, portrays uh, and maybe makes a bit cartoonish almost the ugly sides of uh, some of the characters from the South as they dealt with extreme poverty. Um, so it's got some, I would characterize it more as a, you know, Southern fiction with a you know, slight bit of Southern Gothic in it. So final comparison, would someone who liked the movie Knives Out like your book? Um, there's no reason why they wouldn't, but I'm not so sure. Uh, it, I, I wouldn't find too many similarities between the two i okay. i felt that knives out was well i guess i just made a horrible mistake and i apologize i thought it was southern <laughs> because it has a brit doing a southern accent in it which is <laughs> canonically not southern right. um i withdraw the question thank you for the answer <laughs> i was gonna uh, end with a simple one so now that you've done it you're through the process and you're writing your second one what warning and encouragement would you give to a new author who thought, thinks himself, I, I think I have a book in me too, and I would like to write a novel? Um, I will pass on the best 
writing advice I received, whether or not it serves anybody else, well, I couldn't tell you, but I can certainly tell you it worked for me. So we were here in Charleston and we were still kind of spending our time mostly in Phoenix, uh, but we're here and we're you know, looking to meet new people. And we were introduced to a couple and they had retired here. And so we got together for dinner and um, I had just sat down to really for the last couple of weeks trying to write this book and was extremely frustrated. And through the course of the dinner, the gentleman asked me, so, you know, Paul, you know, what are you, you know, what are you doing? And so I, I, I told him I'm trying to write a book. <laughs> I figured it was a safe place because we didn't know the same people. Well, he had a career. He had retired from a career as a film editor in Hollywood. He knew a fair amount about storytelling. Tell and I expressed to him my frustration of just just even getting started with writing a book, staring at a blank sheet. And this is the advice he gave me. He said, stop trying to write a book. Just start writing. Just start writing. Just write a scene. Just start writing and stitch it together later on. You'll never write a story beginning to end all the way through. And I went back to the library the next day, turned on the laptop, and I didn't think about anything. I just started writing. And he was dead on right. And Every time I get stuck, I'll, every time is probably too many. Most of the time when I get stuck, if I get up, walk away, go do something else, come back, sit down and, and stop trying to write something specific, but I just start writing. I find that I end up writing something where the words I can keep, they'll need editing, they'll need fixing. And it could be a scene that I go, that's a good scene. I don't know where it's going to go yet, but I know that's a really good scene. And I quote, stick it on the shelf. And that has served me well. I don't try to write the book from beginning to end. I, I, I write and then stitch it together later. Awesome. Well, we will be putting links to the podcast and the interesting things we talked about with Paul on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee. One more time, Paul's book is called Blood in the Low Country. I know they can get it on Amazon. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. I've loved it. A if, lot somebody, of fun. if somebody wants to email a question your way, uh, can we uh, call on you to answer their questions? Absolutely. Thanks so much. You can uh, find us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we are www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup website is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our sponsors are art, coffee, chocolate, rum, and let's face it, sightseeing. And thank you to Jackal Designs, who released our 100th anniversary, our 100th episode new t-shirt, which you can buy from our website. And hey, thanks for listening.